This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, sociologist Beth Truesdale discusses her book, Overtime, America's Aging Workforce and the Future of Working Longer. She discusses the future of retirement and whether working longer provides better financial security for workers. Um, of course, physical demands aren't the only reason that people might leave the labor force early. And indeed, you know, many, as we were saying earlier, many um, older workers are still in very physically demanding jobs and they're finding different ways to cope. She's interviewed by Wellesley College economics professor Courtney Coyle. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Beth, Americans are living longer and healthier lives than our parents and grandparents did. And we hear a lot about how working longer is a logical, maybe even inevitable response to this trend. You say in the introduction to your book that your goal is to examine the viability of this working longer framework. Can you say more about how your book is helping to fill a gap in the working longer conversation? Yeah, so that's a great place to start. Let's talk a little bit first about where does this whole kind of working longer framework come from? Um, what, what is this idea? So Americans are living longer lives than they were 50 years ago. Uh, that's true in most nations around the world. Most nations are getting older. Um, people who are living longer are going to need income for more years of life. And so the question is, where's that income going to come from? Where's that money going to come from? And As different nations have grappled with this, the big solution that's come up is that people should just keep working. They should delay retirement and work longer. Um, And that's really become an orthodoxy. So it has a lot of advantages on the face of it. You know, it looks logical. It looks logical because Americans are living longer lives. They're on average healthier as well as living longer. Jobs are, on average, less physically demanding than they were, say, 50 years ago. And um, people have more education than they did 50 years ago, which might open up some different job possibilities for people in their older years. So all of these things, people have looked at this, policymakers have looked at this, researchers have looked at this, and said, hey, this is totally logical. If we're all going to live longer, we're all just going to have to work longer. And it seems to solve some problems, too. So it seems to be a win-win-win. That is, it seems like for individuals, that's going to help to shore up retirement security, which is pretty fragile in the U.S. It seems like it's a win for employers who are going to be able to tap a bigger pool of experienced labor if more older workers stay in the workforce. And it seems like it has the potential to shore up Social Security, which is facing a shortfall. 
Um, if people are able to work longer, then we can perhaps raise retirement ages for Social Security. And that will cut the cost of Social Security um, and make it easier to balance the books for Social Security. So all of these things have come into play as people have looked at the solution and said, hey, you know, work longer, that's going to work out. What we came to think is that this question, this possibility, as you said, has not been well examined, hasn't really been thought through in the way that it needs to be, and hasn't been sort of critiqued and queried in the way that it needs to be. And so that's really what we set out to do with the book, is to say, okay, how realistic is this for people to be able to delay retirement? And usually in terms of delaying retirement, you know, people are talking about like, well, can we delay retirement from 65 to 67? say, the, in the U.S., the um, full retirement age for Social Security has been increasing gradually from 65 to 67, and some people suggest that it should be 70 years old or even higher. So, you know, if, if the retirement age is, is increasing, you know, maybe this is going to work out. Um, but when we, look at the, when we looked at the problem, what we realized is that the averages look pretty good, but if you look at the inequalities, it looks a lot less good. That is, when you look at the distribution as well as the average in terms of outcomes um, for work, for retirement, for health, the picture looks a lot different. So we started to ask, okay, who are we leaving out? Who are we leaving behind when we're having this working longer conversation, when we're thinking that people can, yeah, mostly delay retirement, that's going to be fine, and they just need to be persuaded or encouraged to work a little longer. So that's really where the book came from. That's where the whole question came from and our feeling that it was really time to question some assumptions that have been made and not looked at. So I wanted to follow up on what you were just saying about people possibly being left behind. Um, one of the key assumptions kind of, and you've alluded to this, uh, one of the key assumptions underpinning the idea that working longer is a solution or maybe the solution to population aging is the idea that everybody basically still is working when they get to be, you know, 60 or 62 and, and it's possible for them to delay retirement behind uh, beyond this age if they want to. Is it actually accurate to say that most people are still working at those ages? Yeah, that's absolutely critical. I think we have this sort of notion in mind about what retirement looks like, right? This idea that we sort of work in a career job, you know, maybe with a you know limited number of employers over the whole course of our lives, and we get to 65 and we get the gold watch or whatever, and we retire and we go off and, you know, fish or golf or volunteer. And, you know, that's kind of the mental model of retirement. But that's actually really not the case for um, an awful lot of Americans. And, it, you know, if it ever was the case, it's less so, I think, than it used to be as people have more different employers over their lives and more um, precarious employment, more unstable employment over the course of their lives. When we actually look at the numbers for in terms of employment and labor force participation, um, you can see that by the time Americans get to their late 50s, you know, kind of 55 to 59, already about a third of Americans in those years are not working for pay. By the time we get to 65, we're looking at fewer than half of men and about 40% of women are still working for pay at that age. So this idea that we work sort of steadily up to a given moment and then we retire and that's, you know, sort of sharp cutoff just isn't the way that retirement actually works in the U.S. And that's hugely important for thinking about how do we manage the whole retirement transition. 
So just following up on this thread about the, as you mentioned a minute ago, the career job and the gold watch waiting for you at age 65, that is the model that a lot of us kind of have in mind when we think about the retirement decision. But one of the things I learned from reading um, your book is that actually a lot of people work a lot more intermittently um, in the run-up to retirement, a lot more being in and out of the labor force. Can you talk a little bit more about that phenomenon and what its consequences are for the ability to work longer? Yeah, that's really important and something that we learned in the course of doing the research for this book. Um, We started to look not only at the kind of labor force participation or employment rates, you know, at a given moment in time, but also like how does this unfold across people's lives? Um, So we looked at um, the stability of employment in people's 50s, kind of, you know, between early 50s and early 60s. The earliest age that you can claim Social Security is 62. So you know, kind of saying what's happening in the decade before you get to age 62, the earliest age that you could claim Social Security benefits. And what we found, I think, really surprised us. I would not have guessed it coming into this research, which is that only about half of Americans are steadily employed all the way through that decade. Um, about 15% say that they are never employed during that time, and then about a third are intermittently employed. That is, there's at least some point during those years in which they're not employed. And this is hugely consequential because um, working longer, that is, in terms of like, you know, working, say, beyond age 62, is hugely concentrated among people who have steady employment all the way through their 50s. Among people who have steady employment all the way through their 50s, about 80% of them work at some point between ages 62 and 66. So, you know, that is a really strong precursor to working longer, having that steady job all the way through your um, 50s. But for the third of Americans who are in intermittent employment, the um, rates of working longer, of working beyond age 62, drop really fast. It's about 35% of those people are working at some point in their kind of mid-60s, only about a third of those people. So what we came to understand is that, a couple things. One, that we really need to look at the at, at retirement much earlier. You know, we tend to look at retirement decisions like, you know, well, if people are retiring at 65, could we get them to stay in the labor force till 67? You know, just extend a couple of years. Um, You know, we're kind of thinking of those years, 65, 67, 70, when we're thinking about working longer and delayed retirement. But actually, we need to be looking at this much, much sooner. We need to be looking at what's happening to people in their jobs, in their lives, in their 40s and 50s, because that's really where the the groundwork is, is laid for working longer into your 60s and beyond. So continuing here, I mean... An overarching theme, really, of the entire book is that we need to be thinking about much more about social and economic inequality when we think about working longer and about policies that affect older workers. You mentioned a minute ago that averages, um, thinking about what's happening with the population kind of as a whole, can, can be sometimes be misleading. Can you give us some examples of how focusing on the average American's health or job or finances can lead us to overlook important challenges that are facing um, important segments of the population? Yeah, I love that you asked that question because it really is one of the sort of foundations of this book was to say, let's not just look at the trends, the averages. Let's also look at what's happening 
to people who are in different subgroups of the population by their level of education, by their race and ethnicity, by gender, by where they live in the country, what's the local labor market like when they live, where they live, all of these sorts of things um, that are, you know, real dividing lines and fissures within American society. And those are inequalities that map onto the working longer conversation in lots of ways the minute that you start to look at it that way. So you mentioned health, and that's one of the really important things, because one of the real sort of underpinnings of the working longer idea is this idea that not only are Americans living longer, but also they're living healthier lives in their older years, right? You get this sort of 70 is the new 60, or I think I saw a, a headline not too long ago that 80 is the new 50. Um, you know, we're getting younger and younger here. Um, so if that's true, the logic goes, you know, if we're going to be healthier for more years, why don't we spend a few more of those years in the labor force? That shouldn't be too big an ask. But when you start to look at the way that this breaks down across um, different groups, especially by education and by income, you have huge inequalities, and in some cases inequalities that are growing over time. Um, for example, um, in, you know, during the past decade, um, men at age 40, say, could expect to live to about age 87 if they were in the top 25% of income, but if they were in the bottom 25% of income, their life expectancy was about a decade shorter, about age 77. Those are huge, huge differences, huge inequalities in you know, just the number of years that you can expect to live. And the health that people have tracks those kinds of inequalities as well. Um, all sorts of poor health are more prevalent among people who are in disadvantaged groups across the board. And of course, that's really well known. But I think we haven't brought that into the conversation about delayed retirement enough. Because what we really found out is that the people who are in the groups who are most likely to have poor health because of challenges that they have faced for much of their lives in many cases, um, those are the people who are least able to retire financially. They've probably been least able to save. They have the smallest social security benefits. So they can least afford to retire, but they're most likely to have health problems that are going to interfere with their ability to, to work, or at least for working longer to be a really good and healthy option for them, even if they do continue to work. Um, this is especially important because people in, who have lower levels of education are typically um, in jobs that are very physically demanding. So nearly half of Americans who are still working in their late 50s are in jobs that are really demanding physically in some way. That is, they involve a lot of like bending, lifting, twisting, or they're in um, you know, different sorts of hazardous and difficult environments. And you can think of things like you know, working in a warehouse where you might be walking miles and miles a day to do the pick of all of these things that you're trying to ship out. Or working in a restaurant, which is hugely physically demanding. You know, you're on your feet, you're moving fast, you're lifting things. You're working in really difficult environments a lot of the time. Even things that we don't think of as physically demanding, like retail or hairdressing, um, really are very physically demanding. You're on your feet for a long time. Um, those can be extremely challenging jobs to stay in as people age. They can be difficult at all ages, very demanding at all ages, but especially difficult for older workers. And yet those are, again, the groups that you know, the groups who are working in those sorts of jobs are also the groups of people 
who tend to have the worst health because of the challenges that they faced across their lives and who have the least retirement security. So you really have this kind of perfect storm coming in terms of retirement security for people in disadvantaged groups. Let's go a little deeper on this point on inequalities in health, because I think it's so important. A lot of, um, as we talked about already, a lot of the motivation for, for the idea that policies should presume longer work lives is this idea that we're all working longer. Um, and you've already told us about some of these really big differences kind of at a moment in time um, between, say, less educated and more educated groups in terms of their life expectancy. I wanted to bring in the kind of overtime dimension and mention a recent study that the National Academy of Sciences did that basically compared people born in the 1930 birth cohort and people born in 1960 and found that virtually all of the gains in life expectancy, this working longer that we hear so much about, all of these gains were really being experienced by people more or less in the upper half of the income distribution, where people in the bottom 40% of the income distribution really had not experienced any gains in working longer. Um, Can you say a little bit more um, about, uh, you know, we've been talking about life expectancy, but also just about people's health when they're in their 50s and 60s. Do we see the same kind of differences across groups in terms of chronic diseases, um, back pain, other kinds of things that could um, inhibit people's ability to work, especially when they're doing the kind of physical jobs you were just talking about? Absolutely. So that's a really terrific point. I think in both health and employment, what, what you see is that these averages hide really big disparities, right? So you exactly as you've said the you know the top bit of the distribution the people who are in the best position who have the college degrees who've been in stable jobs who've earned higher wages for much of their lives you know and also who tend to have desk jobs who are able to do jobs even if they um, have some physical health problems um, those are the people who've really captured all of the gains in life expectancy in health and in employment at older ages. So you have these growing inequalities in um, health and employment at older ages. You asked about the um, inequalities in health and other measures other than just the number of years you're going to live, and that's hugely important because you know, we really shouldn't reduce health to the difference between being alive and dead. Um, and I think one of the most consistent findings in all of the social sciences is that people who are more advantaged tend to have better health by almost every measure of health that we can come up with in almost every time and place that we can look than people who are less advantaged. That's really true across the board. And in the US, over the past three to four decades, we've seen some really worrying changes, as you said, in the bottom half of the income distribution in terms of health, in terms of well-being. Um, We're talking about things like chronic conditions, pain, um, we're talking about things like, you know, just, uh, you know, disabilities that affect your daily lives, uh, the ability to, you know, kind of take care of yourself on a daily basis. Those are all, those, you know, forms of ill health are all much more common among people in disadvantaged groups. And I think, you know, we've, we've premised the kind of working longer idea on, on the idea of sort of unlimited and continuous improvement in health. We, you know, sort of take for granted that um, people in every uh, demographic group are going to live longer, they're going to have better health, they're going to be able to work longer, you know, all this is going to get better. And I think what we're increasingly understanding is that 
there, there are no guarantees there. We are seeing for substantial sections of the population health conditions that are, you know, at least no better than the generations ahead of them, and in some cases and by some measures, worse than the generations ahead of them. So we can't take this idea of sort of continuous improvement for granted. Um, and I think that's a really important challenge to the idea that working longer is an easy solution to population aging. I wanted to bring in some of the real people that feature in um, one of my favorite chapters in the book. It was called, Di- the chapter is called Dying With Your Boots On, very evocative, and was written by Mary Gatta and Jessica Horning. So I'm thinking in particular of Diane, a 69-year-old um, hostess in a restaurant, and Joan, a 66-year-old bartender. Um, their stories really highlighted for me that some people, there are actually too poor not to work. For them, retirement is an unattainable luxury. Um, Can you help us understand from their stories or more generally, how is it that some people reach retirement age with so few resources to support them? Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked about that chapter because um, I love all the chapters, but that's one of my favorites too. I think it really points towards the need to, you know, bring stories into the conversation, bring the qualitative evidence of what's actually happening in people's lives into the conversation that's, you know, dominated by numbers. Numbers are important. I love numbers. But we also need to be understanding, you know, some of the experiences and strategies that people are actually using as they're aging in these years. So you mentioned a couple of these uh, people who are um, interviewed in this chapter and who are quoted in terms of, you know, how they're handling these years. Um, You mentioned Diane. So she is a a 69-year-old restaurant hostess who has worked her entire career in restaurants from the time that she was 18 and working night shifts at a local diner. She has worked hard her whole life. And at various points in her life, she has gone through layoffs when a a restaurant that she was working at was sold or closed, went into new management, went into bankruptcy. And she's had to move on and to find new jobs it's not been something that's been, a, you know, stable for her as she's had to, you know, find her way through this. And as she's gotten older and older, the difficulty of finding new employment when she goes through a layoff has gotten harder and harder. And at, you know, age 69, she's finally come to the point where she has to declare bankruptcy because she's no longer able to sustain, you know, just her day-to-day expenses. And at 69, she's still trying to work because she can't afford to retire. Um, she's looking for jobs hostessing, working in cafes. She's put an ad on Craigslist offering to pet sit for local families, anything that she can do to earn some money. But she's two months behind on her rent. And if she can't make her rent, her next strategy is that she's going to live in her car with her cat. So we have the situation where it's just, you know, it's a really, really difficult financial situation for, for Diane, and there's no clear way out of it for her. Now, the question you ask is, so how did that happen? How did she get to 69 with so little financial security? And that's a really important question in terms of, you know, how do we think about um, improving the situation for more Americans who might be in that kind of situation of financial precarity as they age? So part of the um, answer for Diane is that She's worked her whole life in a low-wage sector. The um, 
federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. That hasn't changed for decades. And the you know, real value of that, what it can buy you, has declined over the years pretty sharply. And it's now, you know, the U.S. minimum wage is now, has the lowest purchasing power of really any minimum wage among developed nations. So that's part of it. Working in the restaurant industry specifically, you have what's called a sub-minimum wage, a tipped sub-minimum of $2.13 an hour. So that means that the restaurant only has to pay $2.13 an hour. The rest is supposed to be made up from tips, which sometimes works out well and sometimes doesn't. So we're talking about very low income throughout her life, so very few opportunities to save. She was never in a situation where she was able to... um, you know, have an employer-based pension. And that's actually hugely important. In the U.S., only about half of American workers have some kind of employer-based retirement savings, um, a 401k or a traditional pension, only about half. So really, you know, the kind of savings vehicles that we think of in terms of, you know, how you save with your employer, those are only reaching about half the population. And Diane was not one of those people You know, a lot of low-wage jobs don't offer those kinds of benefits. So that's part of the story. She wasn't able, she didn't have the income to be able to save. She didn't have an employer who was able to offer her retirement savings benefits. And because she was working in the restaurant industry, there were many places during her career where she was working off the books. And so that means that during that time when she was working off the books, Um, Her employer wasn't taking Social Security taxes out of her wages. She wasn't paying into Social Security. And so when she came to being able to claim Social Security in her 60s, the monthly benefits that she was receiving were very low because she hadn't paid into Social Security for as many years as she had actually been working. So Social Security, I think, just to to tag on to that too, I think a lot of people don't realize how modest Social Security benefits really are. Um, Social Security benefits were never designed to be the only source of retirement income. And so by design, they're pretty modest. The average retirement benefit from Social Security is about $20,000 a year. So that means an awful lot of people are living on less than $20,000 a year in their older years if they're relying so exclusively on Social Security. And for people who have worked their whole lives in the bottom half of the income distribution, even if they've worked full-time, even if they haven't been working off the books, the amount that they receive from Social Security often isn't enough to meet a basic budget of, you know, just basic, uh, you know, housing, food, you know, very basic expenses. So, you know, that was very much Diane's situation. But she's, I think, you know, what's important is that Diane's not a one-off. She's a, you know, her situation is not so different from that of an awful lot of Americans, particularly people who have worked their careers in lower-wage jobs, you know, that are precarious, that are hard to sustain, that are often physically demanding, too. Um, But it's a problem that's actually really, really widespread for Americans and not only... um, people like Diane who are in that particular situation. 
Well, thank you for lifting up her story. And there's so many compelling stories here. Another one that really struck, really stuck with me um, was somebody from Pennsylvania, a waiter named Jim. If you don't mind, I'd actually love if you could share directly some of what Jim told the authors. I think this is on page uh, 189 of the book, if you have it handy. Um, and what do we learn from his story? How does it illustrate what you were telling us before about how poor health and the physical demands of low-wage work you know, can combine to, to, to create a real obstacle to working longer. Yeah. So as you say, Jim's from Pennsylvania. Um, he says it's a young man's game working in the restaurant business. It's hard to keep up with the physical demands. The plates are not light and I'm constantly carrying heavy loads. Um, he told, uh, Mary Gatta doing this research, he told uh, her that during his thirties at one of his jobs, he had to navigate two steps in the dining room. But because the restaurant was busy, he'd try to jump the steps to save a few seconds on each trip from the kitchen to the tables. And that jumping all those years ago eventually led to a chronic Achilles heel problem. So each night after his shift, he says his feet ache as he tries to go to sleep. And he questioned how long he could do this work. He says, I'm coming up on 60 years old. I don't think I can keep it up. I don't know how much longer I can do my job. At my restaurant, everything is refillable. Bread, soda, soup, salad, pasta. It's like whack-a-mole. I just run my entire shift. So that sort of situation, I think, is what we need to, part of what we need to be thinking of when we're thinking of you know, what does it mean for Americans to try to delay retirement? What kinds of jobs are we asking them to hang on to for more years as they're getting older? Um, of course, physical demands aren't the only reason that people might leave the labor force early. And indeed, you know, many, as we were saying earlier, many um, older workers are still in very physically demanding jobs and they're finding different ways to cope. Um, but it's, you know, this combination of, of these, you know, really intense physical demands, um, poor health sometimes brought on by the very jobs that they have been working for their whole careers, you know, these are some of the things that make the idea that you're just going to work, you know, into your 60s, into your 70s, you know, or beyond, that really calls that into question. We've been speaking a lot about health, and it that is one very important barrier to working longer for some people, but it's actually not the only potential impediment. And age discrimination is another one we should definitely pay attention to. There's another story in the book of um, someone from New York City named Henry, a bartender in his 70s, who says that um, where he used to find it very easy to find new jobs, now he struggles to find work because many, bar many bars, in his word, words want the youngest newest model what does the research actually tell us about how much of a barrier age discrimination is for older workers yeah that's hugely important um age discrimination is really pervasive i think it's hard to measure age discrimination because you know you don't always know exactly what's going on inside an employment relationship if you're not hired you know if you put in an application for a job and you're not hired is it because of your age? Is it because of something else? It's hard to know. Um, if you're not promoted, if you're you know, gently pushed or not so gently pushed towards the door, is it because of your age or is it because of something else? It's hard to prove. But that said, there is really a good body of evidence um, with you know, some very high quality research that shows that age discrimination in hiring, in retention, 
is really a pervasive problem. And I think this is something that, you know, older adults who are in the labor market themselves often, you know, really are aware of and experience. As you say, the, the case of Henry, um, who's interviewed for this chapter, um, you know, not having, you know, he doesn't look like the sort of bartender that they want up front anymore. This is one very particular sort of discrimination. Um, the the phrase that, for it that I love is aesthetic labor. Um, the idea that you got to look the part, right? That aesthetic labor, that an employer wants to hire you or keep you on because you match the brand, the thing that they're trying to sell. And so this is in the uh, chapter about restaurant workers, this is especially important um, for women, even more so than for men, which is, um, you know, also a thing, as you said in the case of Henry, but, you know, even more for women who are expected to look the part. And so what often happens in these cases is that the women are moved to from front of house jobs, like, you know, serving tables or bartending, to back of house jobs, you know, working in the kitchens or behind the scenes, as they don't meet the sort of criteria for how they're supposed to look anymore. And that kind of discrimination has real consequences because the back of house jobs tend to be less well paid than the front of house jobs. So even though these people are continuing to work, continuing to do their jobs, or continuing to do a job, they're working for less and less pay. Um, So I think that's hugely important. It's also really important to say that age discrimination, although it has particularly serious consequences for these uh, workers in lower wage jobs, that we've been talking about, it's something that's experienced by you know many older workers across the board, including people in you know, positions of relative advantage. Um, Peter Gosselin, who's a journalist, has written some terrific things about um, cutting old heads at IBM, um, in which he documents how um, IBM deliberately uh, pushed older workers out of the labor force, even people who have really extremely high skills and abilities and who were doing their jobs well. So this, you know, sort of age discrimination is really important. And both in terms of like staying in your job, but then even more so um, perhaps in terms of getting hired for a new job. One of the statistics that always really sticks with me is that if you lose your job, even among people who have full-time, full-year career types of jobs, If they lose their job because their employer decides to let them go in their late 50s or early 60s, only one in 10 of those people ever again has a job that pays as well as the one they lost. Only one in 10. So a lot of people who think that they're going to be able to work longer, who are counting on being able to work longer in order to afford their retirement, find when they're laid off that they're not able to get back into a job that meets their needs as well as the one they lost. And what we see is that that's really true across the board, even for people with college degrees or higher degrees, as well as for people in less advantaged groups. Let's talk a little bit about caregivers 
caregiving responsibilities. Um, people in their 50s and 60s can have that kind of responsibility coming at them from lots of directions. They may have aging parents or parents-in-law. They may still have dependent children at home. And they may also have partners who are starting to experience um, health problems. And so what do we know about how much caregiving people are actually doing when they're in this age range, whether this is similar across different groups and whether it disrupts people's work plans? Yeah. Um as you say, beyond health, beyond age discrimination, caregiving is one of the biggies in terms of how do you stay employed during these years, during your 50s. And because of the way that we tend to um, give caregiving responsibilities more to women than to men, this falls particularly heavily on women. Um, when we just look at the percentage of women who are caring for parents or parents-in-law at some point during their 50s, and we're talking here about you know, pretty intensive kind of caregiving that is helping with things like eating, bathing, dressing, you know, not just running errands for mom on the weekends, but, you know, kind of really intensive caregiving. Um, about a third of women in their 50s do in that kind of caregiving for parents or parents-in-law at some point during those years. And this is a really interesting case where the, the likelihood of caregiving is actually higher among women who have higher degrees who are more advantaged than it is among women who are less advantaged. The reason for that, however, or at least a big part of that reason, is that um, women who, have, who are more advantaged, who have college degrees, are more likely than women with less education to have living parents. Because you know, as social economic classes sort of passed from generation to generation, the parents who you know were had higher levels of SES and socioeconomic status and were in better health lived longer. It's their daughters who are in this situation of of needing to care for them. And you know this often hits right around the fifties, right in this you know window where people are having difficulty staying in the labor force, but really need to be staying in the labor force if they're going to try to you know make it all the way to the mid. Uh, 60s working. Um, so about a third of all women, and disproportionately women, um, who are more advantaged. And it does really cut into women's labor force participation. That's what the, the research shows, is that, you know, it's, I think it's probably not a surprise that if you're doing that kind of caregiving, um, it makes it harder for you to work a job, it makes it harder for you to, um, you know, to work as many hours if, even if you do continue to work, it makes it harder to work as many hours as you might otherwise work. And so it really cuts into uh, women's employment during those years. It's one of the reasons that women tend to end up with much more precarious retirement security than men. It's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons. So we've covered a lot of the factors that can make it harder for people to work longer. In intermittent work history, poor health, especially for people in physically demanding jobs, age discrimination, and now caregiving demands. I want to shift the focus a little bit to think about the role of the employer in all of this. How are firms responding to having an aging workforce, and are there things that they could be doing even better? Yeah. So there's an awful lot that's been written about you know how how employers uh, can take advantage of uh, an older workforce. We you know the th sorts of things that they should do if they want to recruit and retain older workers. And one of the chapters in the book by Peter Berg and Matt Pitchek um, 
really, sh- you know, takes a, takes a sort of critical eye at that and looks at, okay, you know, here's what uh, research says employers should do, but what are employers actually doing? And they look at um, manufacturing employers in the U.S. and in Germany, and they find that in both nations, the response from employers is, uh, you know, pretty ad hoc, um, very reactive. That is, that employers aren't seeing retaining or recruiting older workers as an important part of their human capital strategy. If they have an older worker who's got very specific skills, skills that might be hard to replace, then they'll do their best to keep that person um, in some way, you know, to make some accommodations perhaps uh, to help that person to stay on and work longer. But otherwise, you know, they're not deliberately doing much to try to recruit or retain older workers. And in some cases, they're actively pushing those workers out of employment at older ages. So I think, you know, it's really important to say that, you know, this, how, you know, how do we respond to an aging workforce? Employers have a, have a responsibility here as well as public policy. Um, but, you know, at the moment, I think they largely aren't seeing it. That said, one of the other things that the chapter um, that looks at this really do- shows really well is that the context matters in terms of the you know, social policy context and the context for what um, social scientists call worker voice. That is, you know, the sort of influence and power that workers have to influence their own working conditions. So because the chapter is comparing the U.S. and Germany, um, they're really able to compare the difference in this, the institutions that um, channel worker voice in these two countries. In the U.S., the main channel for worker voice has been unions. Well, union membership has fallen over the last three or four decades. And in the private sector, um, union membership is now, I think, lower than 7%. So very few private sector workers are represented by unions, which otherwise might be able to help in terms of, you know, supporting pensions, keeping older workers... um, you know, employed in their jobs for longer and, you know, helping them towards retirement transitions within an employer that would be, you know, really satisfying for the worker and good for the employer as well. By contrast, in Germany, there's an institution called Works Councils, which allow um, workers to negotiate as a body with employers. And those Works Councils give workers, you know, a stronger say in what's important to them about um, work and a, a better base of, of being able to negotiate with employers for conditions. And so in Germany, they show that um, there are these institutions that help to make, help older workers to transition. For example, some things like phased retirement, um, you know, different kinds of uh, policies that might particularly help older workers either to work longer or to make a retirement transition on their own time when they're ready for it. I wanted to talk a little bit about the fit between a worker and a job, because that also seems like something that might be important in someone's ability to work longer. What do we know about the functional abilities of older workers? So things like cognitive skills, physical abilities, other kinds of abilities, and whether that's actually a good match with the kind of jobs that are out there and potentially available for them. 
Yeah, so this was really interesting to me as we uh, did this research, a chapter by uh, Ben Berger and Nicole Maestas and colleagues, that has a look at this. You know, it, it really takes this interesting perspective on saying, okay, so workers have this whole set of skills and abilities, and different jobs demand different skills and abilities. So how do these match up? And in terms of working longer, the good news for what they found is that the you know um, um, the work capacity that's represented by all of these skills and and abilities really declines only slightly as people get older, at least you know sort of up to their seventies. Um, really, you know, older workers are very capable. You know, there are stereotypes that play into age discrimination in terms of what where older workers are and are not able to do. But what what we find when we look at the evidence is that really older workers are, you know, in many ways just as capable and in some ways more capable than younger workers. So that's the good news for working longer. The slightly less good news is when they look at the inequalities, that is, especially by educational level, the skills and abilities and how that translates into work capacity is much much better for people with college degrees with higher levels of education than it is for people with less. And that helps to create, some, I think, some of these inequalities that we see in work at older ages. I mean, if you think of it more from the sort of, you know, from the individual's point of view, you know, think about the people that we were seeing in the chapter Dying With Your Boots On. You know, those are people who in many cases, love their jobs, would love to be able to do them longer. You know, they, um, Joan, one of the people that we didn't talk about, who was a bartender for her whole career, talks about, you know, how she really loves bartending. Um, you know, Henry, the bartender, also really loved his work. Um, Diane thought, you know, felt like her, her serving her um, customers in the restaurant, you know, that was something she really enjoyed. That was a sort of calling for her. So, People, even in very demanding jobs, often really love their work. It's not that they're trying to you know, leave their work early or get out of it. Um, but as their physical capacity diminishes, their ability to stay in those jobs becomes harder and harder. So you know, that's certainly one of the places where this kind of collision of skills and abilities with the demands of work is is really tricky. So, you know, how you know, do we have ways to help older workers transition into work that's going to be a better fit for them? Or can we find ways to redesign the work itself so that it's better and safer for older workers and by extension better and safer for workers of all ages? You know, both of these are different ways that we can think about coming at this problem. So, yeah, just to kind of sum up on your question, I think what we found is that you know most Americans have the skills and abilities that they need to work in some kind of job, you know, well into their 60s. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be able to find a job or to keep a job that really matches those skills and abilities or that meets their needs. Um, geography is an important part of this, um, and the chapter that you wrote in this book about geography really shows this so well that when you look at um, across commuting zones, which are kind of, you know, if you think of like a metro area more or less, you know, the area that people live in if they're going to commute to work 
um, in an area. These uh, commuting zones across the U.S. Um, differ in terms of the employment rate among workers in their 60s by more than 20 percentage points. So you have these huge disparities in terms of places where people are able to work longer, where there are jobs available to them, and places where there are just you know many fewer jobs available to them. So you know, how much good does it do you to have the skills and abilities that you need in order to be able to do a job if you live in a place that doesn't have those jobs available to you? Or if the jobs that you have skills for and abilities for are not jobs that work that employers want to hire you for. So, you know, good and good and bad news on the kind of skills and abilities front. Well, the policy piece is so important here, and I want to turn to this in our remaining time. In the U.S., as we know, there are these large federal government programs that provide benefits to older individuals, so Social Security, Medicare, but also other safety net programs. How Remind us, how important are these programs to the financial well-being of retirees, and do you think it's desirable for these programs to evolve to reflect the reality of our longer lives and maybe even encourage people to work longer? Yeah, um, that's the the multi-billion dollar question right there, isn't it? Um, So to start with Social Security, Social Security is the absolute backbone of retirement security in the U.S. Um, About 9 in 10 Americans over the age of 65 um, receive Social Security. For a substantial proportion of people, it's their main or their only source of income in retirement. Um, it's been called, and with good reason, um, America's largest anti-poverty program. It, the fact of, of Social Security really shrinks um, inequalities in economic inequalities in older ages, um, as one of our chapters by Gary Burtless demonstrates. So Social Security is hugely, hugely critical and important, and it's hugely popular. It's very popular with voters um, of both parties, um, and I think with good reason. So Social Security, hugely important. Social Security is facing a funding shortfall. It has been for many years, and successive administrations have not seized the opportunity to make the changes that would be needed to close the shortfall. So what does that mean? I think a lot of people, you know, there's this sort of story of like, oh, you know, Social Security is going broke. That's actually not correct. What the situation is, is that um, Social Security is a, it's called a pay-as-you-go program. That is, the people who are working now are paying into the program with their Social Security taxes, and that revenue is going out to the people who are receiving benefits now. So as the population has aged, there are fewer people of working age paying into the system for the number of people who are... Um, retired and taking benefits at older ages. And so over the years, um, a trust fund was built up of the surplus contributions for many years. Has that, that has been drawn on in order to pay the benefits that are owed to retired workers. And if Congress does nothing, in the you know early to mid-2030s, the Social Security trust fund will run out. When that happens, it doesn't mean that Social Security is not going to exist anymore, but it does mean that if Congress does nothing, um, all benefits will be cut by about 20%. And 
because Social Security benefits are modest to start out with, a cut of 20% is a big deal and would cause a lot of hardship, especially for people who don't have other sources of retirement income. So there's a need to close this funding shortfall, and there are various proposals of different ways to do this. One of the proposals is to raise the full retirement age, which, as we said, it's going up from 65 to 67. If the full retirement age were raised to 70, um, which is one of the proposals, I th- that would um, essentially be a cut in benefits of, 20, of about 20% across the board. I think a lot of people don't realize that. I didn't when we started this research, that a rise in the full retirement age from 67 to 70 is equivalent to a 20% cut in lifetime benefits. And that might not be such a big deal. You know, if people are able to defer retirement for another three years in order to keep their monthly retirement benefits the same as it would have been before. But there we come back to the whole question of, you know, is it realistic to ask people to work to 70? In a lot of cases, as we've said, you know, that is not feasible or desirable for individuals to work that long. So cut, you know, cutting benefits by raising the retirement age would fall heaviest on the people who can least afford it. Other possibilities for closing the funding gap include raising revenues through taxation by raising the Social Security um, contributions. One way to do this is to increase what's called the Social Security cap, taxation cap. So the way that Social Security taxes work is that you pay Social Security taxes on your income up to a certain level. Right now it's about $147,000 that you pay on. And beyond that, you pay nothing. So what this means is that someone who earns a million dollars a year uh, you know, from their uh, work pays exactly the same in Social Security taxes as somebody who's earning about $150,000. If we were to raise the Social Security tax cap so that people who are higher earners are paying the same percentage of their income as people who are lower earners, that would go a substantial way towards closing the funding gap. Um, there are you know, a number of other possibilities. You know, whichever possibilities Congress chooses, it's going to have to be uh, raising more money, you know, raising more revenue, or cutting benefits, or some combination of the two. And the mix that we get is likely to depend on uh, which party is in power in Washington and the priorities that they have in terms of how they'd like to see Social Security funded or not funded. So this conversation is leading right into one of my very favorite parts of the book. I have multiple favorites, but the final chapter where you lay out some policy proposals that are really inspired by your findings in the rest of the book. Um, these fall into a couple buckets uh, of policies. The first one um, are policies that help to provide a secure retirement for all Americans. And I think everything you've just said on Social Security is a huge piece of that. But besides shoring up Social Security, are there other policies that you think we ought to consider that would fall into this bucket? Yeah. Um, I think what we came to as we, as we wrote the book, um, my co-editor Lisa Berkman and I, as we you know, thought about like, okay, 
how do we take these new things that we've learned through all of these chapters that this really fantastic interdisciplinary group of authors have come up with? You know, we've got the economists, we've got uh, sociologists and epidemiologists and political scientists and psychologists and industrial organizations folks. And, you know, the different perspectives that we were able to come up with as we went through, you know, editing this book, what have we learned? Where does that leave us in terms of what we ought to do about the problem? Because it's really easy as social scientists to say, oh, here's the problem. We have a terrible problem. Um, But then sort of walk away from it and say, well, the policymakers ought to come up with some solutions. We really wanted to try to go one better with this book and to actually say, okay, what do we need to do about this? And in order for people, in, in order for two things to happen, in order for working longer to be a better option for more Americans. We think working longer is part of the solution, part of the appropriate response to the population aging. But we would like a vision of working longer where that's something that really meets a worker's needs, that meets their family's needs, um, that you know doesn't harm their health as they're in the run-up to retirement. And then we also want to see a situation where retirement security is improved, where uh, you know people can afford to retire. I think we shouldn't give up on the idea that you know Americans deserve a secure retirement after a lifetime of work. And dying with your boots on is not a strategy that policymakers should endorse, in a sense. So, in terms of retirement security. Um, Shoring up Social Security is critical, but because Social Security benefits are modest, we need to have ways of saving for retirement outside of Social Security. And as I mentioned earlier, since only about half of Americans have an employer-based retirement savings of any sort, pension or 401k style, we need something that is going to reach a bigger section of the American population. You can design all of the you know, 401k programs you like, but if they don't reach a majority of your population, they're not going to work at a population level. So some of the proposals that we think are really promising here have to do with um, savings programs that are universal, that is, they're available to everybody, they're automatic, You don't have to think about whether you're in or you're out. You're automatically in, at least unless you opt out. And um, they're portable, meaning they don't rely on being sort of attached to your employer. They follow the worker instead of the employer. And that's extremely important, especially for lower-wage workers who are more likely to have to move from job to job, from employer to employer, and much less likely to be in jobs where the employer actually offers them a retirement benefit of any sort. So there are a number of different proposals out there for how to organize these uh, savings plans, but the key is that this is, you know, this is the long run. We need to be acting now on these kinds of savings plans, putting these in place for today's workers who are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, so they can be saving for, for retirement in a more effective way for when they become the retirees of the future. Um, so that's, I think, a hugely important strand of of thinking about how we deal with retirement security. Um, and then we also need to be thinking not only in terms of security and retirement, but we need to be thinking in terms of uh, how do you f- how do you support people with disabilities who are not able to work, you know, all the way to sixty two or sixty five or seventy or wherever we 
set our retirement ages. Um, Social Security Disability Insurance is the main way that we do this. You pay into the program, and if you become disabled, you apply for disability. If you are awarded disability benefits, then you receive a, a modest benefit. Um, it's extremely hard to get Social Security, even if your health, uh, Social Security disability benefits, even if your health is very poor and it can take years to apply, to appeal, to get all the way through the process. It's, it's extremely onerous and difficult process to qualify for um, disability insurance. So, you know, looking at ways that we can speed that process so that people can get an answer more quickly. Looking, too, at ways to use the disability system to say, could we intervene earlier with people um, who may be newly ill or injured? Um, We know from lots of research that the best time to help people is early on when they are first ill or injured, and hopefully while they're still connected to an employer, you know, oftentimes very modest and inexpensive um, accommodations can be made that help the person to keep their, uh, you know, keep their employment and not fall out of the labor force. So, you know, looking at retirement security, social security, retirement savings for the coming generation, but also how do we make our our disability systems more robust if we're going to rely on. Um, Delayed retirement is a major part of our response to population aging. Then we really need to look at how do we provide for people who aren't able to work as long as we're asking people to. You've given us a lot to think about there. I hope that policymakers, um, that the ideas that you're putting forward in this book are reaching them because I think it's a lot of great ideas about how to make uh, for more secure retirement. I'm afraid we're reaching the end of our time, so I'm just going to wind up here. But I really I want to um, thank you, Beth, and your co-author, Lisa Berkman. I feel like this book has really reframed how I think about the working longer um, conversation, and um, I hope that that's true for the listeners as well. So thank you so much for your time today, and thank Thank you to everyone for joining us. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. <laughs>